Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, December the 20th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan, political editor Pat Leahy is here. And Pat, you had a sit down this week with Sinn Féin leader Mary Lou MacDonald. Yes, I did. Um, I had a full on sit down interview with her in uh, her office in Leinster House. We recorded it uh, as well for a podcast today. The print version is in the paper and uh, online. And And it's all live. People can read it. But we wanted to look at a few sort of key key elements and parse them a little bit. Um, You talked to her really about a quite a broad range of, sub, of subjects. And um, not surprisingly, some of the conversation was about Sinn Féin's economic plans. Yeah, so one of the things that I wanted to tease out uh, with her a little bit is Sinn Féin's great political message is change. And that's the one on which it ran at the last election and had such success. And I think it's the one that they will run on in next year's election. But, you know, change is just a slogan. What we'll have to do between now and the election is tease out a little bit what that, uh, what that, change will actually mean. And in particular, I suppose, as much as we want to find out about the things that Sinn Féin would change if it was in government, we also want to find out about the things that it wouldn't change if it was in government. This country has, I think it's fair to say, a reasonably successful economic model in in macro terms, at least. Um, Of course, there's you know, some people suggest the economic model isn't working for them on a personal basis, but, you know, you can't argue with the country's economic success on a macro level. And what I thought was interesting is, so specifically I'm asking uh, uh, Mary Lou about, you know, is it fair to say that she wouldn't change that model? And uh, so we'll hear a bit of that now. It seems to me that you are, on the one hand, telling people that there's going to be a great change if Sinn Féin leads the next government. And on the other hand, you are telling people like businesses, people like the tech companies and that, that the fundamentals of our economic system and our enterprise policy, they're not going to change. Well, you see, I I think business and investment correctly needs to have a sense of direction, you know, of what happens next. I don't think it's an unreasonable ask for any sector to say to me that uh, they don't want to see rabbits pulled from hats, that they want a sense of direction. No, no, no. I think it's very, very important to develop our economy, to maintain those things that we have gotten right, and also to build firmer foundations, particularly in our indigenous enterprise and small, medium and micro enterprise, that people have a sense of the direction of travel. I think that's reasonable. And that's not going to change, would you? No, no, absolutely not. And I mean, we've been very clear talking to people, you know, um, issues around, uh, for example, the corporate tax thing. Mm -hmm. That that matter is put to bed now. I mean, we all support the OECD process. I mean, I think public life in Ireland generally is on the one page on that. So I've been keen to say to people that those that's a settled matter because I don't want people fretting or sweating things 
that are not about the kind of change that, that we're talking about. We want an economy that is robust, that is diverse, that generates prosperity, and then we want to share it um, in, a, in a fair and equal fashion. And when I talk to people across, again, all sectors of society, there's a recognition of the inequalities in Irish society, but there's also an acceptance that in order for us to address those matters, we have to ensure that the economy is robust. The corporate tax, windfall taxes that are repeat windfall taxes, albeit, I mean, that money needs to be, those resources need to be uh, invested very, very shrewdly. Uh, and with an eye on the medium and, and the long term. And then we need to keep developing our productive capacities, our skill base and, and all of that good stuff. So we're, but you we're don't you don't oppose. I suppose one of the biggest fiscal moves this year was the creation of the the savings funds. You're the, the, you don't, the wealth. Yes, fund. you don't no, disagree with. No, that. we don't. And I, I think I think it makes sense. It's just a matter of plain common sense to plan for the medium and the long term. But while you're doing that, you also have to accept that you have big deficits and big societal dilemmas now. So you shouldn't be shirking your responsibilities to address those now, whilst at the same time, putting uh, money away for, as they call it, the the rainy day. I mean, it's, it's a practical thing. It's how most of us run our, like our domestic lives and our, our families, isn't it? You have to provide for now, but you also have to plan the college fund for your your child or children or whatever the case may be. Well, no surprises there, Pat. That's sort of what we've been hearing from you in your analysis of the parties. Uh, move towards the centre, as I think you would characterise it to some extent. The nobody's uh, no we, no horses are going to be frightened. No rabbits are going to be pulled out of hats. Yeah, but it's an interesting tightrope for Sinn Féin then to have to to walk between now and the the next election. And uh, I suppose it leaves the party open to all sorts of questions from the likes of us, I suppose, and also their political opponents. And that centres around the idea of what exactly change means. And she's very clear in this interview that she's not going to change the economic things that work. And Sinn Féin is going around and it's telling businesses and she speaks about this in the interview you know they're reassuring businesses small businesses large businesses American multinationals she went to Silicon Valley earlier this year to talk to tech companies that they have nothing to fear from a Sinn Féin government but on the other hand if you are telling people who feel that that economic system isn't working for them people on the margins of society people struggling with cost of living and so forth if you're telling them that you're going to change then you wonder or at least I think that they would be challenged on this we're not going to change the bits you don't like and we will change the bits we're not going to change the bits you like we are going to change the bits that you don't like but that is in and of itself a position that is at the very least least open to further questions. Well, you, you could argue there's a credibility gap there, but you could also argue that, you know, this is just the reality of, of, of what happens in politics. And I suppose it the may not be, there may not be that much opportunity for parties opposed to Sinn Féin to open up that credibility gap. Yeah, well, much. let's see. I mean, I think it, it makes it harder to run. When you're admitting, yeah, sure, there's loads of things we won't change, it makes it harder to run on the change ticket. And I think that's something that the party will face in the run into the next election. Now, one thing Sinn Féin does definitely propose to change and change quite radically is the state's approach to housing. One of those infrastructural deficits that you make reference to is clearly in in housing. And 
it seems to me that a lot of the, the problem there is that there's a massive crisis of, of affordability. Mm-hmm. And you, you wish to see houses become more affordable. Mm, absolutely. Isn't that the same thing as saying you want to see prices come down? Yes, of course it is. How, I mean, how, how I, much I, would I you want like to, to see houses come down? I want down? to see rents uh, come down also. I think there is a, a mm-hmm. huge crisis of affordability. As a matter of fact, I don't know how in particular younger people in our society, in our economy, manage from paycheck to paycheck. They certainly have no prospect of salting away. Lots of them are deposited if they wish to buy a home of their own or if they wish to to save for, for any other purpose. I mean, for us, the, the issue, the, the, the figure of affordability, I would say the 300,000 mark in, in a place like Dublin, but obviously there would be a regional variation on that. The issue, mm-hmm. the objective has to be to get prices as low as we feasibly can to remedy a situation where in the greater Dublin area, we are now told a couple would have to have a combined income of €127,000 per annum. You and I know, Pat, the vast majority of people working in the Irish economy, joint uh, income holders, they've nothing like that. So we're living in um, a, a crazy situation on the watch of a government who told us, remember, in 2020, that they understood that housing was the primary issue, etc., etc. And yet here we are three years going into four years on and we still have record levels of rents, record levels of homelessness and house prices that are just crazy in regular districts such as I live in myself. And, um, and a half a million for a, you know, a standard home is insane. And and that to draw, to bring house prices down to that sort of level of 300,000 for, uh, for an average home would involve quite a substantial drop in average home values. Are, that's a politically dangerous position to take, do you think? Are you prepared to take no, on that I, danger? I, I tell you, the dangerous position... Because you're, you're, you're going to just, sorry, just to finish yeah, yeah. the point, because you're you're going to people then and, you know, ho- home ownership, either with a mortgage or without, is still the most common uh, most common thing in this country. And you're going to people saying, we, we you know, we this may be difficult, but we want your, we want the, the value of your home to drop. Well, no, you're going and you're saying, we wish your children... Your grandchildren to have homes, but that's I mean, the same thing. I know, but it, but it, you you cite that as a political danger. Let me say to you, the far greater political danger is that we have still an entire generation for whom home ownership is a dim and distant fantasy, and you 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 have also people who literally are paying, I mean, eye watering levels of, of of rent, and others who are sofa surfing living with their mam until they're in their 40s. Underlying homelessness. Right, all those underlying Mm -hmm. things. That that is not just, these aren't just numbers. These aren't just statistics. That is the stuff of social catastrophe. And we can see it again in the economy in terms of attracting and retaining talent, in terms of putting teachers into classrooms, nurses onto hospital wards. Everywhere you go, the issue is, People, young people in particular, although not just exclusively young people, and I'm I'm bringing young up to like into the forties now. <laughs> um, everybody younger uh, than yourself. Everybody younger think, than me, which is now sadly a lot of people, Pat. Um, so, 
that to me is, is the far greater danger. I think if this continues, it puts a strain on the social contract in ways that can become extremely dangerous for Irish society. And dare I say it, the conversation um, over the last 24 hours around what happened in Uttarard, the, the arson, uh, the attack on that building, the criminal uh, burning of that building, um, that there's lots of contributing factors to that which we could analyse. But I have to say to you, the stress on accommodation and housing has been weaponized by some who come from a very ugly perspective. They weaponize that anger uh, towards people who are very vulnerable. So this issue, this issue of housing and accommodation puts such a stress on Irish society and it needs to get sorted out. So that was a, an interesting question. In a way, a kind of statement of the bleeding obvious. Pat Sinn Féin proposed to reduce the cost of housing. That means that inevitably the value of people's individual houses, current homeowners, will fall. But um, it, is, is there a weakness in that proposition? I mean, she, she's a, that, that, that's a stout defence on her part, is that the, the, the social good of bringing in affordable housing, whatever its effect on the overall market, uh, is, is is more important. No, I don't think there's a weakness to it. And, you know, it, many people might uh, uh, agree with it, but it is a position that is fraught with some political risk, I think. And that's one of the things that I was asking her uh, about there, because to run on a platform that says to homeowners, and let's not forget, homeowners, either people who own their own homes outright or own them with a mortgage, are by a large distance the most common form of you know, householdering, if I can uh, put it that way, uh, in in this country. And what Sinn Féin is saying, and what Mary Lou is saying very explicitly here, is we want to see the value of your home drop quite substantially. She's talking in Dublin that it should come down to about the 300,000 mark. Currently, it's about 430,000 for uh, for uh, an average home in Dublin. So that's very substantial drop in the value of your, uh, of your home. And in a way, Mary Lou is just being quite honest about this. You know, she's saying we have to get house prices down to make them more affordable. But if house prices come down, then obviously the value of lots of people's homes will uh, will come down. And, and, and as I say, you know, people can make up their own minds in it. But to my eyes looking at it, that is... It's certainly freighted with some political Do we risk. have any sense? We don't really have poll data or anything on, on, on this subject, do we? And even if we had, to be perfectly honest, I think most Irish people would lie about this and they would claim to be really interested in allowing young people to find, you know, affordable homes and willing to make the sacrifice. But do they really want to make that sacrifice? Well, I mean, I suppose there's some evidence that suggests that many of them might not. And for another iteration of that, if you look at the planning system, everybody thinks the housing shortage should be solved, but not all that many of them think it should be solved by building big new housing developments in the field near their houses. So We are told, and we have discussed in this studio in recent weeks actually, that Sinn Féin is happiest and its poll ratings are best when the subjects of cost of living and housing are top of the agenda. Do you think that's going to continue to be the case? Housing is the issue that Sinn Féin wants to run on. But even then, when you are arguing for change you have to address exactly what that change would mean and who, if anyone, might be disadvantaged by that change. And it is perfectly possible that, you know, lots of homeowners would be prepared to see their homes 
drop in value, maybe for some recent purchasers to go into negative equity if it meant that a whole bunch of new homes were going to be made available for, for their children or their grandchildren. And that, that, is, that is possibly the case. But it's possible case, that but, they won't. It's possible that the kind I, of people yeah. that she talks about in the interview who live near her and Cabra, who've spent €500,000 on a, on, a, on a terraced house, all of a sudden, if it's €350,000, they're not going to be very happy about Well, I that. think there's an element of human nature about this and economic self-interest. Another part of that which she touches on got a couple of points in the interview is confidence in Sinn Féin's ability to deliver and deliver better than the current government parties do to do things better and do things faster. I suppose it's easy to say that when you've never actually been in government. I thought this was interesting um, as well. Yeah, it, it was, and she, we, we spoke about this near the start of the interview and she said this was one of the things that was raised with her constantly in conversations that she was having and she singled out having with business people, business, you know, small business people, large multinational companies was just this idea of the state being the apparatus of the state being inefficient. The objective has to be that this state and our infrastructure capacity can deliver projects on time, within reasonable time frames and on budget. And I think there has been a mistaken notion within our system that in order to get value for money, in order to ensure due diligence with public money, that we have to be slow. But I actually don't see it that way. I think that in order to get best value for money, um, in order to uh, generate uh, progress, you, ha- you have to build in pace and you have to build in efficiency. And I'm not exaggerating about what I say to you. Every conversation I have had with business, large and small, but also with community organisations and with others, this issue of how long it takes for everything to get done is a, is a theme that comes up again and again and again. I actually think that will resonate with an awful lot of people that might not necessarily be natural or traditional Sinn Féin supporters. But we know from the polling that Sinn Féin support is reaching into areas of, you know, middle class and older middle class voters that it was previously quite barren territory for them. There are people there that are now, you know, open to hearing Sinn Féin's message. Uh, that, that idea of delivery and efficiency uh, in, in, the, in the public service kind of applies as well in when you asked her about the current system of um, processing asylum seekers. What would be the changes, if any, in migration policy that you would introduce? Okay, so I've mentioned the housing issue and that's core because I, I think for lots of people that I would talk to who are like really good people, reasonable people who want the right things and want their government, by the way, to do the right thing, their worry is... I don't have a home or my daughter or grandchild and now more people are coming and how is this going to, it's not being managed, there's no plan, there's no scale, there's no ambition. So I've made that point. I would say by way of addition, we have a rules-based system. This business of um, open borders that's touted by some is the stuff of fiction. There is no such uh, thing. We have freedom of movement within the European Union. It's one of the four freedoms, which I think is a great win uh, Mm. for all of us. Uh, But outside of that, it's a question then of how the system itself functions, the efficiency of it, the resourcing of it, the extent to which um, third countries are correctly uh, identified, how we deal with what are called secondary uh, movements. Um, How how do you deal with those? Are people coming from what are called safe 
They are, yes. Yeah. I, I think all of the data tells us that, and I think that. But how would you deal with that? But you have to you have to apply the 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 rule book, and the rule is safe haven, uh, asylum, refugee uh, status, absolutely for those who seek those protections. We have, as a matter of international law and a moral obligation, to discharge those duties. Uh, but in the event that there are safe country, safe third countries that are safe for secondary movements, then equally we have to apply the rule book. And if, if somebody doesn't qualify, well, then they have to leave the jurisdiction. And that's not to be harsh with people. Let me just emphasize this. For us to afford the level of protection that that refugees and asylum seekers are due, we have to be sure that the resource that we have is applied fairly in a human rights compliant way and respectfully. And that means rules for sure and rules that are applied. And do you think that those rules are applied efficiently enough? The rules are there, but do you think that they're applied efficiently enough by the current I, government? I, or, no, I don't would think you like so. To see- I don't think so. And in fact, I think they have conceded themselves that they need to step things up and that there needs to be a, a greater efficiency. And I think there was some question marks with this this idea of people, you know, uh, self-deporting. I'm not sure if that, that was even the correct t- term that was used for it. I think that raised a question mark. I think there is there is also, let me balance that by saying, a, a reality that you have thousands of people still in direct provision who have their papers, who, who qualify, who have absolutely leave to remain here and build their lives in, a, in the in Irish communities, and they're stuck. And they're stuck because of the accommodation issue. So Mary Lou was talking about the application of the rules. She wasn't talking about changing the rules. She was very much accepting the rules, but she was talking about the government applying those rules about asylum and immigration much more efficiently. And, and that, of course implies, and, and, and she says this, that, you know, people who do not qualify for international protection here, she says, well, then they have to leave the jurisdiction. And she immediately follows that by saying, you know, that's not to be harsh with people. I suspect some of them might think it quite harsh, but that is the reality of any immigration policy necessarily must have, there must be, there will be people who don't qualify for uh, residency status here, and so and they will, have, and, and 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 all all systems, uh, you know, have have systems for 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 persuading those people to leave or ensuring those people or, or, leave or, the country, or, or, or maybe they don't. According to some reports, yeah, that we've she talks about recently. this. You know, she raises a question mark about the idea of self-deporting. What the Department of Justice would say is that when somebody is informed that they. Uh, no longer have permission to reside in the country. The view of the Department of Justice is that, you know, they leave the country. But there is actually no means of tracking exactly how they leave the country. And she raises this question about self-deporting. So, you know, she is very clear that Sinn Féin stands uh, fully behind the principle of... Uh, of Ireland, of uh, adhering to Ireland's obligations under its own law, EU law, and international treaties, and that means that people who arrive here and claim international protection or uh, asylum, to give it another word, are entitled to remain here while that claim is considered. They're entitled to uh, be provided for by the state whilst that claim is being considered. 
Uh, they're entitled to exhaust the legal processes here and sometimes that can take rather a long time. She would like to see it done more efficiently and if and when it is found that they do not qualify for residency here for international protection, then she's very clearly saying that they should be... So that is the position, as I understand it, of every uh, Irish political party that is currently represented in the Dáil. And even perhaps some of the independents who've been um, waxing on this subject in, in, in recent weeks in particular, they make shouty noises about tightening things up or things like that. But they, neither are they suggesting that we derogate from our international well, treaty commitments. That, or there, has been, there has been some uh, some independents in the Dáil who've been saying things. Of course, being independents, they're very much concerned with what's going on in their local area. So they might be saying, you know, my hometown is, is full or my uh, county is full or, you know, this particular village uh, is not suitable for 70 asylum seekers or whatever, uh, or whatever it, uh, it might be. But there is a growing drumbeat of people saying that we cannot take more people in. And that is something that all the parties will, it seems to me, have to so is there a recalibration here at all in what we heard from Mary Lou Macdonald this week? Is there a sense that she's focusing or emphasising maybe a little bit more that the process needs to be speedier, that when people exhaust the process, we need to make sure that they do leave the country? Did we hear that from her in exactly that way six uh, months ago? Well, we didn't because nobody was talking about this six months ago. They are talking about it now and I think they will be talking about it in six months' time. My guess is that everybody, Mary Lou, the other parties, will move to a situation that is a bit more like Denmark where they abide by all international treaty obligations by EU law but they have a pretty strict policy otherwise that you're case is adjudicated upon fairly quickly. If you don't qualify for uh, asylum, then you are deported. You also talked about the, you know, the, the other major item on Sinn Féin's agenda always, uh, which is the question of a united Ireland. Yeah, we did. Um, and I suppose this is in light of the uh, subject we never tire of talking about uh, in this uh, studio, which is our recent North and South, the second iteration of our North and South series. So we were talking uh, a little bit about that and I was citing to her the polling evidence as I interpreted it in the recent series to say that there is really no sign of the grounds for a border poll there under the Good Friday Agreement, which are that it looks to the Secretary, British Secretary of State, that it is likely to pass. I said there's no sign of that at the moment. It looks to be very unlikely looking at two years of data now that uh, that situation will uh, obtain before the end of this decade, whatever about into the 2030s. She disputed that. Would you accept that the on the current state of play, um, that the timetable for a viable vote on a United Ireland is into the next decade? No, uh, I don't. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think in this decade, we will uh, have the referendums. And I, I think the preparation needs to start now. I think, you see, we're 25 years on from the Good Friday Agreement in which the provisions are made for determination on, on, on the issue of partition. And it's very important that 
all of us understand that human progress and political progress doesn't reach a point and then get frozen in time. There has to be a level of momentum, transition, transformation. So I think it's actually a healthy thing that the, this conversation on unity is more widespread than I've ever heard it before. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know the polling data I followed with interest, mm. your own work on that. I think that's very, very interesting. The underlying trends are fascinating. There's, I mean, it's un, obviously um, just the second year we've done it, so... But yeah, no, but it's, it, it's good work. If those trends yeah. are continued, then it is clear that there is movement in yeah, a particular and, but, but, direction. But let me make this point. What you're observing in your um, that excellent work is absent in the absence of a declared intent by the government in Dublin and in the absence of clarity from the government in London. So I would suggest to you that as and when a government in Dublin, and Dublin has to lead on this issue, says we will now have and start this conversation, start the preparation, start the work, I think you will see a very different kind of political dynamic. It's a reasonable argument she makes. It's, a co- it's also an undisprovable argument she makes because it is about the future. She is saying, well, if this thing happens, then this other thing might happen. And, you know, maybe that's true. I don't necessarily see the evidence for it. There's but- not much evidence around for it right now. Is there? An, and like we, we have, as you said, we have done quite a lot of work on this and the, the no, data doesn't show it. There isn't the evidence around for it now. What there is some evidence for, though, is that the conversation is progressing a bit, to say no more than that about it. If you were to be the Taoiseach that was in power at the time of those referendums with their possibility for, uh, for success, that you would be trying to construct a new state or playing a role in the construction of a new state that was, would be more British in a way than the current republic and that things like flags and anthems, membership of the Commonwealth and that might come on the table that. I certainly think it'll be more Ulster <laughs> than it currently is because we're to currently a lot of missing. people, Ulster is right, Yeah, yeah, but and to lots others, it's not. Mm. Like we're missing six of our nine Ulster co- counties, so of course it's going to be different. Um, and I, I think that's something to be welcomed. And I mean, as regards, you know, flags, emblems, and all of that. Of course, we need to talk about those things. I mean, for me, the tricolor, the orange, the green, the two great and traditions and entente between them is is the definition of inclusion, but I accept not everybody sees it that way. So let's talk about those things. But let me tell you this, and your own data, I was very pleased to see, confirmed my experience, and it's this. The number one issue that's raised as regards reunification is the health system. It's about access to healthcare. And I think your own data uh, amplified that point. So I think people, we can hold a number of thoughts at one time around identity, you know, what that means, symbols, what they mean, how, how do we accommodate all of that? But at the same time, talk about the bread and butter pieces. And in my experience, it's the bread and butter bit that, that is front-loaded in the, in the conversation. There is a paradox which Professor Brendan O'Leary has pointed out to us here, which is that uh, the least likely um, persuaders uh, of towards Irish unity on the island of Ireland are probably Sinn Féin and a, a highly enthusiastic 
capital or Republican set of projects initiated from the Department of the Taoiseach are likely probably to harden the resolve of those opposed to such a move. Yeah, they might do, particularly when it comes to, you know, hardline unionists. Um, and, and Brendan has talked about the need for if a United Ireland is not just to happen but to be a success, which I think is arguably just as important, then then unionist, the consent of the losers in that referendum, if we're imagining that far ahead, will, will for, for whatever new arrangements are there, will need to be achieved. And sure, yeah, Sinn Féin as persuaders of those recalcitrant unionists or unyielding unionists, however you want to call them, certainly has its work cut out. Now, Sinn Féin has also been the subject of of some criticism in recent months in particular, and not just in the media, but also from fairly reputable international bodies concerned with, you know, good civic society and uh, discourse. And that's over what seems like a proclivity of members of the party to uh, issue writs to different parts of the media. You asked her about that. She's been asked about this a lot in the wake of a case taken by Sinn Féin TD Chris Andrews um, against the Irish Times and personally against our colleague Harry McGee. So she's been asked about this a lot. She has taken legal actions herself. She has one live against RTE at the moment. Her husband has one live against Shane Ross, the journalist who wrote a biography of her. Several Sinn Féin frontbenchers have taken legal actions uh, against both media outlets and some of them against political opponents over things that they said. So it is clearly a tool in the Sinn Féin armory that is used rather a lot, uh, I would say. And um, and that's been, as you say, criticised by civic society uh, organisations, by the NUJ, as well as by, obviously, the media and political uh, opponents. So, yeah, I, I did ask her about that. And I was trying to avoid treading over the answers that she has previously given, which is, you know, I don't mind if, you know, nasty things are said about me, but if it crosses a line into defamation, you know, then that breaks the rules and blah, blah. But actually, I didn't really succeed. That's the answer she gave. Sometimes in a democratic society, lots is written, Pat, good, bad or indifferent, up to and including things that are hostile, but they're within the law and they're within the playbook. It becomes different when somebody is defamed. Uh, or if an untruth or a lie or something that's damaging mm. well, those, to somebody's and, and, reputation. And those things, and I don't want to spend too yeah. much time on this, but those things may be played out in mm-hmm. court. It is the act of taking those... But you see, I, I could equally say to you, the act of defaming public uh, figures, people who are elected, that's not good for a democracy. Is that not chilling also? So I think the best bet, I think that's our, a- best, our best way to proceed is... We all play to the rule book. I mean, your professional organisation, your large cor- corporate organisation, you have editorial boards and standards, you're staffed by professional journalists, not by, you know, wide-eyed ingenue. You should know the difference between fair and critical robust comment and defamation. Mm. And if we all stay within the law and stay within the ditches, well, then I think we all win and we can... Uh, lots has been written about Sinn Féin. Lots more will be uh, written. And if it's hard-nosed analysis, 
criticism, as I say, up to and including even things that are hostile, that's fine. Defamation is against the law, and uh, journalists have to accept that, I'm afraid, like the rest Is of your own legal action against RTE proceeding? Yes. So just to acknowledge that um, we're not playing the, the full transcript of the entire interview here now, people can read a more extended version of it, as you said at the outset, Pat, in the newspaper and on, on irishtimes.com. But just to get your overall sense of um, of your impression of where Mary Lou Macdonald and her party are at now. She had a difficult enough year. She had medical incidents in the middle of it. Does she seem in, in good form, fresh-faced, confident for what is probably going to be a very significant year next year? Rather impolitely, I didn't ask her, in, even in the preamble, about uh, about her health because she, um, she has spoken about this. She had some health issues over the summer. She was off for a few months over the summer and you could see even then, even though it's a kind of a quiet time for politics, how less potent a political force Sinn Féin was without her and it really underlined for me the importance of Mary Lou to the Sinn Féin project and to their election campaign next year, the year after, when, uh, whenever that comes. But I would say certainly in our sit-down earlier this week, uh, she, she was very much a picture of health. Um, she has been combative on her game in the doll in uh, in recent months, and um, I, I think you know to people I said earlier, I, I, I think it's impossible to overstate her importance to Sinn Fein. She will be. I mean, our general elections have become somewhat more presidential uh, in in recent years, anyway, and more personality driven. And I suppose, with the exception of, of Labour and the the Social Democrats, it'll be the same bunch of leaders contending in those debates when they happen, where whenever it is that they do happen. Well, I suppose that remains to be seen. I suppose Michal Martin has a decision to make next summer. Presumably, he will make it before that, as to whether he goes to Brussels or whether he stays to lead Fianna Fáil into the next election. He said, as he is staying to lead Fianna Fáil in the next election. I assume that uh, assume that then he will. Um, Leo Varadkar will almost certainly lead Fine Gael into the next election. Mary Lou will certainly uh, lead Sinn Féin into, uh, into the next election. So yes, and we know from the last election, now of course, you know, the, you know, the great mistake the generals always make is that they fight the last war. And so, uh, you know, yeah, that, I mean, that, that's be... really what I wonder, because some of the or quite a lot of the dramatis personae are exactly the same. Uh, is it going to be Act 2 or a remake or is it is it going to feel sort of different? I suppose nah, it is going to feel different, look, isn't they're it? All, they're, look, they're always different. Campaigns are they're never the same as the one that went before. It's just very difficult to predict how different that they will be. But I think that one thing we can say for sure is that Mary Lou is a very formidable campaigner and she will go into this the the success of the Sinn Féin campaign in the last election was in large measure down I think to the effective campaign that Mary Lou ran this time she will get a lot more scrutiny she has a more difficult sell that whole change thing is going to be interrogated a lot more that having been said she goes into or she will go into the next general election campaign as uh, you know, the leader of the most popular party in Ireland, possibly in government in the North uh, at that stage, looking for a mandate for change, for which there is a great deal of appetite out there. So, yes, she will get more scrutiny. It will be a different campaign, a harder campaign for her, I think, in some respects. But she goes into it in a much stronger position than the last time. Pat, thanks very much. 
And thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. Uh, that's it for today. We'll be back with you very soon indeed. Until then, thank you for listening.